Growing up, I went with my mother to church. I believed in God and I went to, you know, catechism and made my communion, my confirmation and that. I was married for 19 years, but um, a lot of those years were not good. My marriage was not um, what I had thought it was gonna be. I was at work one day and things were terrible at home. They were terrible at work and I just left. I just walked out. I started crying. I was supposed to go into a management team meeting. I said, I have to get out. I walked out the back door and I never went back. Basically, I couldn't really function. I was debilitated by just this paralysis of not being able to feel or do or anything. I was a, a danger to myself. You can't explain it. You can't sense it. You can't feel it. You can't, it's not being sad. It's such a profound, uh, deep, dark absence of light. That's when I said, I'm just going to go back to church and I'm going to pray because I don't think there's anything else left. I didn't even know what to pray for. Well, the next doctor I got was the best thing that ever happened to me. He said, sit down at my desk and you're not gonna leave my office until you call this battered women's shelter. You're gonna call them and I wanna watch you call them because you need to go there. I actually somehow got the strength to um, do something that was so risky, it was paralyzing to me, but to get a restraining order, just to get the strength to do it somehow. I never really put it together right away and I said, you know what, this didn't happen until I started to ask for help. I tried my darndest to fix it and I can be really stubborn and it was really a very humble, heartfelt, desperate cry. I can't do it, I can't do it without you, I need help and this is the only way it's going to happen and that is the only way it happened. I know that. I was a member of a uh, of another church and I was on a governing body. I stopped going to church because we had a big schism there and and uh, political issues with the pastor and every, everyone was just uh, it was a horrible time and, and I think probably half of the people left the church um, including including me. I was married at the time and, and my wife was, um, she was killed in an auto accident. And um, I had my faith, but I, I said, you know what, I need to be in a place where I feel the joy. Would come in alone, sit, um, really felt a connection, felt a connection, especially to the music and some songs which had great meaning for me. Really didn't interact with many people. And I did that for, for quite some time. When I met Carl and he said he was going to a contemporary church, I thought, well, I don't really know what that is, but I've heard about places where people sing and they put words on the wall, you know, and, and it's a joyful kind of thing. Fast forward a week or two, what are you doing Saturday night, Sue says to me. And I'm very adventurous. I said, you know, I said I would love to come because he said how wonderful it was. And uh, he took me here and the first sermon I was here, I was crying and, you know, to go from being so afraid and so unable to function, I could not have imagined, you know, this life now. It became something that, uh, for me, connected the two of us. And I believe God brought us together. I, I mean, I really do. I mean, we were just in very different places and behaviors that were very different. And I don't think it would have happened without some intervention. It's divine intervention yes. to, uh, I don't know if it was divine, but, but some intervention from, yes. you know, from God. I'm not ashamed to say that I 
power of prayer, that I need God in my life, that I need to be surrounded with other people who are somewhere in their faith journey. Whether they were unchurched or, or in some other place in their spiritual journey, I'd bring them in here for nothing other than to be here and to see what this is about and to feel God's presence, especially the Christmas concerts. Christmas concerts, oh, I right? I was going to say that. Brought Sue and, and Sue's mom. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and just a, a great time. And people who haven't experienced um, the spirit in such a, a, an energetic manner, uh, it's transformational. I never used to talk about uh, church or religion, any beliefs of any kind. I never talked about it, say, in, in work or outside of you know, church and that. But now I do, now I tell people. When people will share something with me, I will say to them, I'm gonna pray for you. And I'm going to uh, ask God to, to give you the strength and help you in ways that, that he has helped me. Can we thank Sue and Carl for sharing that? We're thankful because when you talk about how God delivered you, it helps us see how he might be at work to deliver us. And we need to see that. And so we are filled with gratitude for, uh, for both of you for your willingness. Also, we're curious, did Dave, did Dave force you to talk about the Christmas concerts? Was that, <laughs> we want to learn together how to talk about God's deliverance because God wants everyone to know his deliverance. That's what God wants. God looks and sees the world over men and women who are trapped. And what God wants is for them to know the freedom that comes when they're able to walk with him. And one of the ways that God frees those who are trapped, only one, but one of the ways is when people who've experienced his deliverance are able to talk about it. And, and that's what I want to encourage you to do today. And that's what we're gathered around in this month of November. It is the very simple uh, practice of, of being able to talk about God's deliverance. I want to tell you a story of another deliverance. Uh, Frederick Bruner was a college student who experienced God's redemption as a high school freshman in a college in Los Angeles. Uh, before he went off to school that summer, his parents got divorced. And it was terrible for him. I put him in the place of feeling chronically afraid. He felt anxious and insecure. It turned into, it turned into depression for him. Uh, his first semester was just miserable because he was so isolated. Uh, there were some friends of his who were in his engineering classes who happened to be a part of a Christian group on campus. And they got to know Frederick, and so they invited him to come with them to, his group, uh, to their group. He'd never been to anything like this. And there he heard a pastor speak about God's grace and love in Jesus Christ. He'd never heard of that before. He heard about God's redemption and deliverance. He heard about uh, the newness that a person experiences when they when they know God's love, it, it, it sort of lit a fire in his heart. Uh, he couldn't make himself believe it. So after the talk, he went and he asked the pastor, how do I get this? I want to believe, but I can't. And so the pastor said, don't be afraid. Just ask God to help you believe. And they prayed together. And in the next weeks, 
He found this grief lifting like a fog and he found himself feeling a peace that he'd never felt before, a kind of security, uh, a kind of confidence, and even joy, even though nothing had changed back at home. And it was very plain to him, God had delivered him. Am I right that some of you have experienced something like that? Uh, A few weeks on, he went to another meeting, and now the pastor there was telling all of the students, if you've been delivered by God, you should talk about it. You should tell other people about God's deliverance. In the same way I've been saying that, that I really want you to do this. Now, he, he lived right there near Hollywood Boulevard. And so after the meeting was done, Frederick knew, I want to tell other people about Jesus. I don't know how to, but I know that I want to. And so he walked out onto Hollywood Boulevard on a Friday night, and he started looking for someone to tell about Jesus. Does that make you feel a little anxious when you think of it? He was nervous but he knew he wanted to do it. He walked over to a bench and there was a a man dressed in full Marine uniforms. He sat down right next to him. He closed his eyes and he said, God, help me talk about you to this, this stranger. And he turned and he looked at him and he said, hello, have you ever thought about Jesus Christ? Now, this, this guy was caught off guard. He turns and looks at him and he says to him, fella, and, and this was in the 1950s. So that's what you address people as fella. Fella, you get away from me in 10 seconds or I'm going to smash you right in the mouth. Is that funny to you? <laughs> he counts to three. He prays, God, help me pass this test. And then he gets up and he runs away. <laughs> that was his first experience with street evangelism. He goes off into the shadows. He, he collects his strength again. And he says, I have to share about Jesus with someone. He finds another person on a bench. But this time it's a guy who's not in military uniform. It's an older guy who's much weaker than he is. So he sits next to him and he knows if I get attacked, I'm going to be fine. And instead of talking about Jesus, he asks the guy about the weather. And then the guy starts telling him about his grandchildren. This is very safe. And so he unfolds sort of the ordinary talk until he thinks I'll ease into the Jesus talk this time. After about 20 minutes, there's a break in the conversation. He looks down at the ground. He says another prayer, God, help me succeed this time. When he looks up and turns to say something about Jesus to the guy, the man stands up and gets on the bus and drives off. He can't say a word to him about Jesus. He fails, right? And he fails because his method was wrong, but his impulse was right. And what I want you to see this morning is that maybe the only method that you have in your own minds about how to talk to other people about God is is, as unfitting to you as it was for Frederick Buechner in his freshman year, uh, Bruner, excuse me, to share with with strangers about Jesus on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, Maybe the reason it failed is that wasn't his calling. On the other hand, any one of us here, and this is really true for every one of us, who knows anything at all about God's deliverance, we should be open to the possibility that what God wants is for us to tell someone about it. Uh, not for us, but, but for, the, for the fact that maybe this will be the way that God will help that person see his deliverance. Uh, maybe it won't be street evangelism on Summit Avenue, but maybe it will be a conversation with a coworker where you say, I'm gonna pray for you. Because there was a time where I was lonely and I prayed and God delivered me. And so I'm gonna pray for you. Maybe that's what it will be. Do you see that? Or maybe it will be going out to coffee with someone and saying, you know, I never used to invite people to church, but now I talk about it. 
because I've had joy there and God met me there and, and can I bring you to the Christmas concert and would you tell them, Dave, will you tell Dave that I sent you? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that simple. Uh, whatever it is, this is the truth and I want you all to see this and I want it to move you forward as people who speak about God. If you have been delivered in any way, the world around you needs you to talk about it. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone at work or a friend or a neighbor. But what the world needs is people who have been delivered to speak of it. Let's look together at the way Psalm 107 opens. This is the psalm that we're dwelling on for the entire month of November. Uh, this is a very simple and ancient poem about God's deliverance, and it begins like this. This is verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here we're gonna find the words of someone who knows from his own experience that God's love is steadfast and sure, that it's not the kind of fickle affection that we meet in the world which can be withdrawn at any moment if we don't get things right, but rather God's goodness is always there. God's uh, faithfulness is like bedrock. God loves us always, and this, this poet knows it from his own experience, and so he begins by saying, let's give thanks. He's glad because he thinks of God's deliverance. If you yourself know of God's deliverance, would you let your heart feel thankful for a moment? Would you do that? He goes on to say in verse two, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. A redeemed means having been delivered having been rescued from an impossible situation, having been set free from something that you were unable to free yourself from. If you've experienced that here, this poet says, if that's you, say so. That means learn to talk about it. He goes on to describe again what those people are like, those who have been gathered in, excuse me, those he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, the poet talks about all four directions because it's his conviction that God rescues people from every kind of trouble. There's not just one kind of person who God goes to in order to rescue, but every kind of person. Every kind of trouble is known to God and God himself is against all of that trouble that keeps people trapped. And here the poet says, God is like this. He sees people who are far away this direction or that direction and his desire is to bring them all close to himself because that's where they'll have true life. And when he has, when he's gathered people in, what they ought to do is thank God and then say so. That is then tell others about it. And the reason God wants this, listen to this, is because the way God changes someone's story is when they hear the story of God's deliverance. And so when we hear about loneliness, which is overcome, our stories begin to open and maybe we're open to God. When we hear about all kinds of trouble from which God has rescued others, then we are ready to experience God's deliverance. Let me ask you this now, okay? This is, uh, this is a very personal question. Do you know what it's like to be trapped? There are so many different ways in which we human beings find ourselves trapped in life. Uh, last week, we talked about the deliverance that God brings to those who are lonely, uh, Sue and Carl's story helps us see again how God does that. That was the first picture in Psalm 107 of, of God's deliverance. This morning, we're gonna look at a second picture and it is a picture of someone who's trapped. 
And I know there are people all around us who look like they're free on the outside, but inside they're trapped. I know that. Do you know that too? I, I, I mean, in, in your high school, uh, there are people who seem confident and strong and free, but inside they're totally imprisoned. Uh, in, in your workplace, there's someone who's successful and they're rising up and they're, they're, they're all the way up there, but on the outside they look like they've got it all together, but inside they're like a prisoner. Do you know that? Uh, your neighbors, your family, all around us, even in here, there are some who've come in here this morning who are completely and utterly stuck. Uh, here we're gonna look at a picture of someone who is, who is in need of God's redemption because they need to be freed uh, from being stuck. And what we'll see is very beautifully how God frees them and then this simple call for them to share it with others. Now let's look together first at what it's like to be trapped. This is verse 10, the second description of a person who God redeems. It starts with these words, some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in misery and in irons. There we have just two lines of poetry and they say an awful lot. Here is a person who is in gloom. It's one thing to be sad because, well, because there's something to be sad about and it's focused and it's caused by a thing there. But gloom, this is a poetic image of pervasive grief. Settling on a person like a fog settles on a city. It's everywhere. And here, the image of darkness is put right beside this picture of gloom because darkness is the time when you can't see where to go. You can't see what's going on around you. It's a poetic picture of the absence altogether of any kind of joy whatsoever combined with being lost so that you don't know what to do next. And this man, this man doesn't just experience this here and there. He sits in it. That's why the poet says some sat in this gloom and this darkness. For this man, day after day has become the same. It is a sinking into grief from which he is completely unable to free himself, which is why the poet uses the image of a prisoner in irons. He's physically constrained and he can't move. His ability to go in a new direction, to get away from where he is, has been completely taken away from him by, by iron. He has chains uh, that, that, that constrain him. He has shackles on his wrists and on his ankles. And because of this, his condition there is captured with the word misery. His, his external circumstances are so constraining that he has been robbed of all hope and all joy. God, help us, but some of you in here right now know just what this is like because that's where you are. Uh, one wouldn't guess by looking, you, looking at you outwardly because you look so good. But what you've carried in here is this kind of prison. And that's just the thing. The poet is painting a picture not of an external imprisonment, but rather he's painting a picture of a spiritual incarceration. Do you know that all around us there are people who, who, though they're outwardly free, are incarcerated in here. In, in verse 12, uh, there are two more images that the poet adds to really fill this out. Look at it. Their hearts were bowed down with hard labor. They fell down with no one to help. Imagine a person stumbling on an impossibly difficult trail. And now their injury is such that they're crushed and broken and no one is there to help them up. 
Imagine someone whose heart is like a flower that doesn't have enough water. And so instead of standing up confident and strong and assured, it's bowed down like a wilted plant that is about to die and perish. This is a picture of spiritual imprisonment, which is deadly. And I know again that some of you know just what this is like. You know it all too well. Others of you, I hope, others of you have in your past the recollection of having been in that place and yet God came and rescued you. Are there, is there someone in here who has that experience in some measure? Yes. Hold on to that thought because remember, this is not a picture in this psalm of, of how bad it is. It's a picture of how God delivers people from these kinds of perilous situations. And so we're gonna come back to deliverance, but for a moment, if you have it in your past or even in your present, that you're trapped and stuck, and maybe you're a person here who doesn't even believe in God. Someone's brought you because uh, of the Christmas concerts, and here you are, and, and, and now this is all new, but your, your question is, why am I trapped? How did I get here? If God is so good, why does it turn out so often that people get stuck? The psalmist actually tells very directly why this man here is so stuck, and it's in verse, it's there in verse 11. Uh, even though, listen, even though there are many different paths which lead to spiritual prison, every single one of them always starts in the same place, and the place where spiritual imprisonment always begins is the first time you take a step away from God. Here, look at how it's put in verse 11. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. I hear the poet is operating on a conviction that runs from the very start of the Bible to the very end. And it is the conviction that says, first, God himself loves us with such an undying love that he has not left us alone in the world to find out the right path for thriving. Instead, he's given us a clear picture of his way, which if only we follow it, it will be wonderful for us. That's what the poet believes and knows deep down inside. And he also knows that every time someone knows the way to go, which God has set out before them and chooses instead to go on another path, it's always bad for them. Not necessarily because God is some kind of vindictive being who punishes them for not following him, but the path away from God is punishment enough itself. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is very plain in the, in, 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 the, in the very beginnings of the Bible when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. You know this story? Let me hear you say yes so that I know you're alive. Yes, well, I know that story. Moses is with those people and we think about the law as mainly punitive and restrictive. That's how it functions in our own day. It wasn't like that. For those first people, the word in Hebrew even for law is indistinguishable for the word from way, like a path. And God loved his people and he, and he said, look, I'm taking you out of slavery where people treat each other as if they're objects because I hate that. Because I love every person. There shouldn't be anyone who's enslaved. I hate that kind of injustice. And so God takes them out of that and he said, here's the way. You regard every single person as a, cre a, a creature of my, my own. Someone with dignity that you should love and respect. And he lays it out for them. Here's the way of true life. And over and over again, when God's people follow the way that he sets before them, it goes well for them. When they turn away from God's way, it becomes bad for them. Because turning away from God is punishment enough 
At the end of Deuteronomy, you can read this on your own. It's a magnificent piece. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is there and he said, look, God set before you two different ways. It's a way of life and blessing and a way of death and curses. And if you go with God on his path, it will be, listen to this, it will be a path where you love God and you cling to him and it will be good for you. And if you go on a different path, it will be a path that turns out to be a path away from light and freedom and goodness. And here we find ourselves with a perfect description of what happens every time someone turns away from God's words and spurns his counsel. And, and I know that there's such a wide range of faith in people who gather in a room like this, but I will tell you from my own experience of being a pastor and seeing people trapped in every kind of misery that if you just trace it back, at the beginning of every story, there is a determination to turn away from God to one's own detriment. And, and let me be very specific and concrete. Uh, here's a person who should know that it's better to put others first. This is what Jesus taught but they turn all the world around themselves and they're a self-centered person and, and it never makes them feel any better so they become more selfish and more oriented around themselves and they become more and more miserable as they're further and, and further away from God. Have you ever known somebody like this? It's because they spurned the counsel of the Most High. Or someone believes the lie that if I get more things and more power and more prestige and I feed this massive ego of mine and I'm more successful than the people around me, I'll finally be satisfied. And on they go down this path. They don't know it, but this path away from God and away from him further and further. And they're more and more afraid of the misery that all of their acquisitions can never touch. And the truth is they just spurned the counsel of the Most High who says, be humble and put others before yourself. There are endless ways to get oneself into misery. They all come from turning away from God. And listen now, someone in here right now is trapped and imprisoned because they knew the path that God wanted them to take and they took a different one instead. And as I speak about this other person or that man there or this woman, you are thinking of your own plight right now. And the real question is, what shall I do? How shall I be free of this? And I know it, maybe it's not the things that I've described that have trapped you, but I know, I know even those who have been delivered in the past find themselves in places where they're imprisoned. And the question is, what shall I do? And I know this, churches can be the worst at this. They can give you the impression that you're supposed to pretend that you've got everything together and don't ever let on that you are, are, are in this uh, bad place and, and just put on a happy face and sing louder because then people won't know how awful it is for you. But listen, here the poet tells us what this trapped person did. And before I read it, this is for everyone here who's trapped, fully trapped. This is for every one of us who's been freed by, uh, by God in the past but still finds ourselves trapped. Here's what you should do. This is verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And let's not be overly complicated here. That just means the, the, their, the, the cry of their heart came up to God and they said, help me. I need to be rescued. I'm alone. I've been, uh, I've been battered and I need to be rescued. Uh, I, I'm stuck in this habit and I can't get myself free of it. Uh, this escape from my pain has become an addiction and I cannot master it. 
Uh, this shameful habit that I've been nurturing has, has eaten away at my heart and I'm so utterly lonely. I need help. Please rescue me. They've done that and this is what it says. He saved them from their distress. God brought them out of the darkness and gloom and broke their bonds asunder. That is to say, every time a person is trapped, cries out from their trouble to God, God is ready and willing to deliver even when the prison they find themselves in is a prison that they find themselves in because they decided not to listen to God. And this is what God is like. And this is a picture of the steadfast love of God, which never ends. Many of you will have learned to believe that if you get it wrong, if you are a disobedient uh, son or daughter of this father, then until you get your act together, you better not turn back to God. But that is exactly the opposite of what God is like. God in this very moment sees you exactly Exactly where you're trapped, and he has one and only one disposition toward you, and it is love. He just can't wait for you finally to let go of trying to save yourself and open your hands and turn to him and say, please rescue and deliver me. If any one of you would do that out of your own distress, what you would find is a father who loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine, who looks at you like a daughter who has wandered off into the dark and he cannot wait to get his loving arms around you again. Like a son who is ready to lift and clean off and set on his own two feet once again to give you the freedom that you cannot give yourself because you're in chains. He just wants to grab a hold of those chains and break them so that you are utterly free and so that you are restored, so that you're not in gloom anymore, so that you're in joy, so that you're no longer in prison, so that you are utterly and totally and completely free. A child of his who is joyful in his love. That's what God wants. I mean, when you dwell on that, if it's true, and I mean this, if it's true, and it's okay for us to try that out, maybe it's not true, but if it is, think of how that puts everything else in life into a different perspective. What if the Most High, the one who created the universe, is with, the universe with his fingers and the galaxies, he holds them in his hand, the one who gathers the sea up and, and who holds every one of your tears and, and the world's tears all together, what if that one what if that one loves you and is just ready to free you? No matter what, there is no guilt or shame that can possibly separate you from his love, not because of you, but because of how much he loves you. He makes this abundantly plain in Jesus. If it's not clear enough in this poem here, then it is clear enough when we get to the New Testament and we see that in Christ, God himself decided to come into the world so that he could stand in the place of the guilty so that every guilty son or daughter could go free as the innocent one, so that he could take the legal record with its demands which stood against you and nail it to the cross so that you could go utterly free into newness of life like a prisoner who's prison has been shattered and you've gone free into the open. He goes on to say that the poet goes on to say what God does here in verse 16, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. That is the impossible constraints that would otherwise hold you are nothing to God at all. And you are free now to walk away from whatever has imprisoned you into newness of life because that's who God is. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who redeems people from every kind of trouble. I know someone in here wants to shout hallelujah, but we don't do that here. <laughs> but what do we do is this. Here's what we do. And this is what we do. We are ready to begin to imagine how we might say so. 
Okay, not how someone else might say so. Not how someone else might be called to do it, but how, how might God want us to? And I, I want this to be very concrete. It might be that the friend that you brought with you today or the family member that you brought with you or the person who you're just now getting to know in this community is someone who needs to hear a bit of your story about how God has delivered you so that God can begin to loosen up the chains on their wrists and free them. And that's what God wants because God is good and he loves everyone. Is that person that you're thinking of a, just a rotten person who doesn't want anything to do with God? Okay, fine. God loves that person and died for them in Jesus Christ and just wants more than anything else to free them. And maybe your story is a bit of the way to begin that. And so what might it look like? Let me be very concrete. I want to be extremely uh, realistic here, okay? Maybe, and these are stories from my own experience of being a pastor, maybe there's a young mother who's decided to manage her loneliness and her unmet needs with her husband by wandering off and developing a relationship with someone who's not her husband. Uh, she's doing it because of the pain she carries. And she knows it's wrong, but it hurts so bad to be so empty. And so she throws herself into this and, and, and what starts as a small thing becomes something more and she crosses one line that she never thought she would cross and now another line and soon she's thrown herself into what she herself would call sin. But then she comes to a place like this and hears about God's grace for sinners. She knows that she's in a prison because of what she's chosen, but she hears this news of God's, God's determination to have her back. And so it breaks her heart and she believes in God's grace, even for her. She asks God for forgiveness, and then with the help of some friends and a pastor, she goes and, and talks with her husband and unfolds to him the mistake that she's made, and he owns his own part in it, and, and against all odds, there's reconciliation, and there's renewal, and they have a new relationship on the other side of it, and it's good, and it's glorious. Isn't that good? But then, listen, but then she sees a young couple that they've met in church years later who are starting to go down that same path and it occurs to her, maybe it's time for me to tell a part of my story to help. And so she asks her out to coffee and he goes out with him for a drink. And they share something that's humiliating. They share this ugly thing that's in their past, but they do it and they do it because God delivered them. And they believe that if I say so, it might deliver another person. Do you see what I'm talking about? This is not going up to a stranger and trying to initiate some conversation about Jesus that you don't know where it's gonna go. This is a redeemed person saying so. And it's hard, but it's good. And maybe that's not your picture at all. Here's another one. Maybe, maybe it's a young man who, whose family dysfunction is so grievous for him and he doesn't have the skills to cope with it so he finds relief in drinking too much with his friends. And what starts there uh, goes deeper because the alcohol stops working and so now he finds a new drug and then it's another one and before long he's got a career in an industry where drugs are readily available and, 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 and it starts with painkillers and then it goes on to crack cocaine and he's totally and utterly trapped. He's addicted and he's in misery and it separates him from his family and from all of his friends and his money and his health and his spiritual well-being goes down the tubes until he's like a prisoner 
And then he cries out from the pit of that despair, God save me, I cannot master this addiction. And God sends someone who brings him into recovery. And he's redeemed there. God saves him. And then down the road, someone else he works with has a son. And at work, his coworker says, my son's starting to drink too much. And now he thinks, maybe I can share a bit of my story. And God can use my story to help that young man. And so he invites him out and he has to tell his coworker, I know what it is to be addicted. And that's embarrassing, but he chooses to do it because in this way, he will be someone who is redeemed by God and will say so in a way that's like a lifeline to another person. Do you see it? Maybe there's one of you and, and, and these two are you. Maybe one of these stories is your story. Let God encourage you right now in your heart to think of how you might share with another person. And this will take humility and it will take letting go of your ego. But if you do that, you won't have let go of anything worth holding on to. I promise. I mean it. Do you know, I don't talk about the devil a lot, but I want to say so. What the devil wants is you to keep quiet. I'm serious. If you've been delivered and you're a little bit ashamed of what's behind you, the devil's going to play on that so that you keep your mouth shut. And there's one reason why he wants to do that. It's so that you can't help somebody else. And, and meanwhile, what God wants is for every person who's trapped to let go of this torturous idea that only when we get ourselves together are we right with him. And instead, he wants us to know that he is outside of every prison door, ready to come in and shatter the bars of iron and cut those bars in two so that we can come out and be utterly free. And we don't have to do anything else but cry out to him. And when we are able to tell our stories to someone else, then God will use our stories to free someone else. And that's all he wants. So here, in order to make this as practical as I can, I want to come back to the list that I gave you last week, if you were here, of how to say so, so that we can get practice again. All right, do some of you remember that list from last week, the four bits of advice? Yeah, the first one is to be authentic. And this one, again, let me, let me free you. This means don't try to be some other compelling, persuasive person than who you are. Uh, if you're not very good um, at, at telling stories, fine. Be as bad as you are at telling stories. I mean that. If you're not as ready to answer questions and you're not as confident as someone else is, that's okay. Be as uncertain a a as you are, that's absolutely fine. If you're... Uh, filled still with lots of things that make you doubtful, you don't need to hide that. You can be authentic. And, and God isn't going to get anywhere with someone pretending. So you don't need to do that. Instead, you can zoom in, this is the second bit of advice, on the facts. You can stick to the facts. You can come into that place where what you know for sure is, here's an example, I did something that was altogether wrong and no one around me had any reason to forgive me, but because God is gracious and the people who are close to me believed in his grace, I knew God's forgiveness and restoration. How does it work? I don't know, but this is what happened. I was forgiven. That's the fact. Or you can stick to the facts. I was in a prison that I myself was responsible for. I bought the drugs. I bought the alcohol. I'm the one who spent that many hours at the office. I neglected my family. I'm the one who did all of those things. And there I was. And it was because I was self-centered and I was obtuse and I cared about no one else but me. That was me. That's the fact. You can stick to the fact if that's your facts. If you will do that, if you will be authentic and stick to the facts, and then, this is critical, this is the third bit of advice, if you will trust 
in God's power and not make the mistake that so many of us are apt to make, which is to think that it's all up to you and your goodness and your strength and your power to help someone else know God. If you will trust in his power, then you will be ready to say so. And of all the kinds of deliverance that we're gonna talk about, this is the one that will require this the most of you because what we're talking about sharing is a story where you wandered away from God and God forgave you nonetheless. And do you know that's not very fun to talk about? Do you know that? It's not. Uh, we're talking about a story where the authentic approach might be to say, I myself have been really wrong. And that's hard to do. We're sticking to the facts means sharing something you're ashamed of. Let me be very specific here. I spoke at a men's retreat about five years ago. There were 250 guys there. After the first night, I was talking about God's deliverance, about how he saves us from things that get us stuck. Two or three guys came up to me. They said, look, you might not want to talk about it out loud, but we need you to. There is a problem that is ruining so many of our lives. It's pornography. It's ugly to talk about, but this kind of pixelated fantasy where we get intimacy with a computer screen, it is destroying our souls and everywhere we look, men are stuck and trapped in it. And unless we're able to start admitting this, it's only gonna get worse. Would you talk about it? A few guys asked me that. The next morning I thought, okay, I shared that I had been, uh, that, that someone had shared this with me and that it was something that we needed to see. And that only when, only when men were able to, to be honest about their own need would there be any headway. A, a guy from the church that I was with, there were 20 guys that came from our church, took me aside after that second talk. And he said, Christian, I wanna talk about my own struggle with that with all the guys that came from our church. Would you let me address them as a group tonight? Uh, after the third talk, the 20 uh, guys from our church were together and this man stood in front of all of them and he said, guys, I've been ashamed to admit it, but for a long time, I've struggled with an addiction to pornography and I'm not proud of it. But when I hit my lowest point because it drove so much distance between me and my wife and it made me a fake person and it corroded my heart from the inside out, I decided to cry out to God and ask for his deliverance and he gave me the courage to tell two other men about what I was struggling with and they've now joined me as friends and I confess to them and they pray for me and God has delivered me. If any of you are in that place, you should not be ashamed, too ashamed to tell me about it and you watch what God does. Seven other men from our group talked to him. And to this day, it's been years now, they meet in a small group where they support each other. And the reason they're able to do that is because God is a deliverer and one man had enough courage to be authentic, to stick to the facts and trust God. And maybe that's not your issue, but every one of us will have some place where we're trapped and we'll know God's freedom and if you've known that deliverance, it's time for you to learn to say so. And here's the last step. And this is the most important. It's why I put it last. Anyone who's ready to talk about God's forgiveness has to know through and through God's love. And so you must believe God's love. Listen now, not only for you, but for each and every person that you will ever meet on planet Earth. Uh, there was one of the apostles, uh, John, uh, one of the closest friends of Jesus who uh, 
after coming to know the Savior, began to uh, become a minister out in the world, and he wrote some letters. In one of those letters, he's talking about the death of Christ for our sins, and he catches himself, and he says, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, Christ himself died. And that means that as you imagine saying so, and here I want you to think of one person that you may be called to share with. If you're going to be authentic with them and stick to the facts and trust God's power, you must through and through believe in God's love for them no matter where they are because the truth is in Christ God has loved the whole world and given himself for it. Uh, Do you know this? For God so loved the world. In Greek, it's the word cosmos, which means the entire creation. And that means there's not a single person or thing that's not the object of God's love. Now, what should that do for us? Here, two things. First, it should make us ready to share when we've been redeemed. And here's the second thing. It should make us joyful. And I want you to let the thought settle in your heart for just a moment that the God who is is most high, he, he loves you and at every moment he's ready to free you. Uh, doesn't that make someone joyful? Is there one person who's joyful enough to say it out loud? Yes? Okay. In a moment, the musicians are going to come and we're going to sing, and I want to hear your voice singing loudly. I mean, there's a song about being joyful. Would you guys come up? While I pray, uh, let's ask God to help us rejoice together in song. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your deliverance of those who are trapped. God, for those of us in here who have it in our own memory, the day that you came and broke the prison bars which held us, God, would you bring that thought to our hearts so we are joyful now, so that our song is a vivid expression of our gladness. And then, would you help us learn to say so, so that you would use our story to change other people's stories. And then, for anyone who is still trapped, would you help those of us who know of your joy and deliverance, would you help us sing of it? Would you help us embody it? Would you help us talk about it in a way that you would use us to free others? We ask for this in your name because we believe you love all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.